Hi, I'm Lanise Brothers, a registered nutritionist, women's health, hormone, and menstrual cycle coach, and the founder of Eat Love Move, a nutrition and well-being practice. This is the Period Story Podcast, where in each episode, I sit down with a guest to talk about their period story. We get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods and so much more. Now, on to today's guest. On today's episode, we have Katie Lindemann. Katie is a writer and patient advocate in addition to her day job as a digital strategist. Following multiple rounds of IVF and two miscarriages, in 2017, she was told her body would never be able to sustain a pregnancy. She now writes about infertility and pregnancy loss and advocates for better understanding of the patient perspective of fertility issues. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great to be on. So let's start off with a question I ask everyone. Tell me the story of your first period. Yeah, so I was 14. Um, I was the I was the girl who had like the flattest chest and, you know, like, you know, at school where you could see everyone's bra. And I was the one who like, thank God Marks and Spencer's made a crop top with a bra back because like I didn't, there was nothing going on. And I, my mom was 16 when she got her period. So because I'm like, identical to her in like everywhere I sort of assumed I was gonna like it was gonna be them and so I remember at 14 like there was some blood in there and I thought oh man maybe I've like caught myself or something like that like it just didn't occur to me because in my mind I was like oh it's you know like 16 or something and I didn't have boobs so I was like you know I I wasn't expecting it even though 14 is, is late you know most of my friends at school I just literally was like have I I caught my like what what's happened and then suddenly like it was just like deus ex machina I was like oh maybe that's a period and I was just I was so stupid because anybody else but because I just wasn't expecting until like 16 it is so ridiculous but yeah so that was it was just like oh my god oh my god that's actually a period oh how funny you know so that it was it was just I just felt really foolish <laughs> so when you when you got it, what did you do next? Who did you talk to? I think I, I think I probably had a conversation with my mum going like, mum, like, is it? I think I just, I sort of thought like my, I thought I would probably like needing a bra, I thought would come first and they still hadn't turned up. So I think I was just sort of like, well, what do you think? And I think she was like, well, yeah, it probably could be a bra. I was like, Oh, okay so she was like all right well I'll, I'll you know I'll get some and again I didn't I didn't think I had any like towels or anything in the house because I just don't think it or maybe there was the one from school where the woman came around and had I honestly I can't remember and I think she was like okay well we'll buy some pads or something like that so I think maybe she went out to the chemist or something or maybe like she had a pant liner or something and kind of did that there was Honestly, I can't remember, but it was all fine. It was all very, you know, it was all very easy. And I remember reading the, you know, like it was the rite of passage, the Judy Bloom, you know, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And I do remember having a conversation. I think it was a few months later with my dad. Like, And again, like my period was so easy, but which we can come on to, but having like some cramps or it was just, and I was like, this period thing's not all it's cracked up to be. He was like, yeah, sorry, darling. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you spoke to your mom. It sounds like you had a really conversation, good conversation. It was very open. How, uh, how did you learn about everything else surrounding periods? Oh, well, it was, again, like, 
it's one of these things that I wish I had like more visible, you know, more salient memories. Um, again, I didn't have anything traumatic or anything. I'm told by my mum at primary school that she was having some conversation at, you know, at the school gate with some other mums. And basically she said they were doing the, have you told them about the birds and the bees? And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to need to buy a book. Or I'll get them a book or something. And then basically, apparently, like my mum quizzed me. And then the next day she told them, don't worry, Alex Northover's told them everything and it's all correct. So, you know, we then obviously had the conversation and she explained. And But again, it was one of those things that, you know, and then we a few years later, there was the school talk. But, and I remember very clearly having a conversation. It was, it was actually, it was with, I was having a sleepover at a friend's house and I remember having a conversation. We were all chatting with her mum about periods or something. And her mum was saying, I never connected what the period had to do with the egg. And we were like, yeah, because you kind of, you knew there was like this cycle thing. And again, you were like, okay, well then there's bleeding and da, da, da. But I just never really paid attention. So now when I, when I started going through fertility and suddenly it was like, well, what happened to your periods? I was like, well... I vaguely remember that I didn't get them very often, but I couldn't tell you like whether I ever had a regular period because I just didn't pay attention to it. And of course they say, you know, oh, it's quite normal for them to be irregular. So like, I didn't pay attention except for the fact, I think, I think because they were so irregular, when I was in sixth form um, or whatever grade that is doing my A-levels, I, I was, a loser I wasn't having sex at that point but I decided I wanted to go on the pill because I wanted to control my periods because I was like well I boys don't have to deal with periods during their exams so I don't want to I don't want to have to deal with having cramps so I went on the pill so because that way I could back to back and not have to deal with it and the thing is I had super easy periods what I now know and I guess that's the other thing is that you have no idea what a normal period is. So when people go, are they heavier than this? No idea. You know, who knows what, what, you know, what normal is. So the honest answer is I don't remember very much except that they were irregular and I just didn't really want to have to bother with them. <laughs> and when, after you went on the pill, uh, well, I guess 1718, did you kind of just, put your period to one side and just think, okay, the pill is taking care of it. I know I came off it because again, I do remember I lived in, um, uh, I went to college in Florida for a semester and my grandmother lived over there in kind of Costa Geriatrica. She like, and my grandfather had retired to South Florida, you know, median <laughs> age eight to five. And I remember having a conversation. That was it. It was Thanksgiving. And no, that was it. So about a week or so, or whatever, at some point, I think I'd mentioned something about that I hadn't had a period for like six months or something. And I wasn't on the pill at this point. And she was like, oh my God, you must see your mother's gynecologist. And I was like, well, my, why would my mum have a gynecologist? Because obviously in the US, as you know, like everyone has a specialist. And my grandmother was like, well, that's ridiculous. Where does she get her pap smears? And I was like, the GP with everyone else. And then, of course, my period turned up at Thanksgiving, you know, when everything was shut. I was at my grandmother's, who unsurprisingly didn't have anything. I didn't have anything with me because, again, I, because I just didn't really have them very often, I wasn't, I don't think I like carried pads with me or tampons or I just don't think it kind of 
I don't think it happened often enough for me to be like, oh, I might get caught short with my period. So then I had to go like driving around trying to find a drugstore that I could get tampons on Thanksgiving. <laughs> and and then when did you start to, did your period start to normalise at, at any point? I don't think so. So again, it's one of those things that, you know, and we can come on to talk about it, the advice, you know, I wish I had been more aware and tracked um, because the answer is I don't know. I know I was on and off the pill, you know, various points, um, you know, various on and off throughout university. And basically then when I got together with my now husband, so pretty much all of my 20s until I came off to try and have my fertility checked out because I had always suspected there might be something not quite right down there because I knew I'd never really had regular periods I couldn't remember how often or this but I knew I didn't again that kind of six month my horrified grandmother just stuck in my mind that I was like yeah I don't I just remember not and I always knew that I didn't know when you know I know I didn't have that thing of oh I'm late you know there was no sense of that so I was on the pill for most of my 20s and for as far as I was concerned that was great because it was like well I could control I was like well why would anyone want to have a period if you don't have to have a period and you know the doctor was like yeah you can back to back you know so I kind of you know I'd have one every couple of months again not a period but a a breakthrough bleed um and as far as I was concerned that was great I was like okay well you know why would I why would I want to have a period um so the answer is I don't I don't think they were ever regular I, but I couldn't tell you how often or how, you know, until I came off to find out at 28 to find out what was going on. Um, Cause I just don't remember. And so again, I would, I wish if I had my time machine, I wish I'd paid more attention. And when you came off the pill at 28, what was that? Can you talk a little bit about your yeah, absolutely. journey of coming off the pill? So I, um I was very settled with my now husband and you know it was that thing of kind of becoming more aware of getting older and I knew we weren't ideally I didn't we weren't ready to start trying for children but I knew that I was like yeah you know we we want this in our future and and I think I remember being on the tube or something else and reading something about you know fertility MOT which was you know the egg counting thing and again it was one of those things that egg freezing had started to be talked about and I didn't really know what that involved but essentially I was sort of becoming more aware that you know if we wanted children in our future and being the sort of person that likes to plan I was like you know I think there might, you know, maybe there's something going on because I knew I'd never really, I'd never, before I couldn't remember the exact details, I knew I'd never had a monthly cycle when I wasn't on the pill. So what I decided to do was decided to come off the pill so that I could then, in my mind, it was so I could go and get the egg counting thing, you know, to find out. Because my view was, okay, this might not tell you everything, but at least if there is a problem that we know about, then we can maybe make a decision. And I think I had a vague idea in my head. I was like, maybe I'll ask about egg freezing. I didn't know what it involved. I just thought maybe I'll ask about it. I'll find out about it. And so I came off the pill and about six months later when I still hadn't had one, and again, they say, you know, it can be a few months, but at six months I asked the GP and they said, yeah, at six months it's reasonable to do some blood tests. So they did some blood tests. And they said, oh, um, it might, you know, this might indicate polycystic, you know, PCOS. Um, so we'll send you for a scan. 
so you know I get the letter in the post saying come to this place and they explain in the letter that you know we will do uh, an abdominal and we'll do an internal one you know so they're fine I go along and the sonographer does the abdominal scan and kind of wiggles it around and he goes yeah you know that that Again, I now know he was obviously counting follicles and went, no, you're not PCO, so we don't need to do the internal scan. So then I basically left going, well, if it's not PCOS, why don't I have periods? So basically, I sort of, the G, I think they just sort of said, we'll just wait and see, you know, essentially because it didn't say there was a problem. They were just like, well, I'll just wait and see. And the thing with the um, fertility MOT is in order to have um blood's done because they were doing you know they do your base hormone levels and um an antral follicles count scan where they do the kind of egg counting you have to have it done at day three of your cycle or day two to four so the day three bloods and they were like yep yeah, so you have to you have to call us when you've had a period and i was like but the problem is i don't have periods now what i know now is that i could have easily asked for a small course of um, norethisterone or Provera, which is a form of progestogen that would just induce a bleed. I didn't know that at the time. And so they were like, okay, you have to wait for a period. And I was like, but the reason I want to come is because I don't have periods. So it took 10 months between coming off and getting a period. Oh yeah, and that was it. And they said, no, 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 it has to be at least another one. I was like, it could be another 10 months. And I do remember it was about another month. So for all I know, that could have been my first regular period. No idea. So I go um, to the clinic and I have the bloods. This is a private clinic, so you pay for the, um, you know, the egg counting thing. And the nurse does the scan. And immediately she does the internal transvaginal scan because she goes, we can't see anything. That was it. So I looked immediately, like I'd done some Googling before then, going, well, what could it be? And essentially, Dr. Google said, you can't really see anything through the abdominal scan. So lots of people didn't, it didn't show anything on the tummy scan. But then when they had a vaginal scan, it was like, yeah, everywhere. And so immediately, as soon as you put the wand in, uh, sometimes known affectionately by fertility patients as wanda or dildo cam, um, there was just it had the classic PCO so they have like a ring of pearls there was just follicles everywhere and she was like well that's that's a polycystic ovary and there's a difference between polycystic ovaries and polycystic ovarian syndrome which I know you know Mm. um and lots and lots of people have PCO and that doesn't mean you have any symptoms it's just a thing of your ex PCOS is where you have the syndrome and there's three criteria that you need you have to have um clinical or biochemical signs of hyperandrogenism so i didn't my testosterone was fine but i had acne uh you need to have irregular or absent ovulation yes 10 months no periods um and pco on ultrasound and you have to have two of those three and i had all three and i remember when i then saw the consultant with the bloods and again that showed there's another one where it's a balance of your fsh and lh which are supposed to be around the same but if you have lh that's like through the roof then that often is a sign of pcos although it's not on the diagnostic criteria because i was very you know and and very i was skinny um and he said it's a misconception. So after the bloods all came back, uh, you got an appointment with the consultant to discuss. And he said to me, he said, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, um, but how can I have PCOS if I'm not fat and hairy? Which I stress his words, not mine. 
Um, and essentially what he said was that there is um, the typical uh, phenotype with PCOS, which is associated with insulin resistance and obesity and often hirsutism. He said lean PCOS is actually very common, but very often not diagnosed because it doesn't exhibit the symptoms of classic PCOS. And then when I actually came to have uh, see a gynecologist for fertility, he said, yeah, lean PCOS is actually a lot harder to treat um, from a fertility point of view. He said, because classic PCOS actually very often lose weight, change your diet, very often that can restore, you know, restore ovulation and that's much easier to treat. He said, yes, uh, lean PCOS is still an endocrine disorder. It's still associated with insulin and that you're sensitive rather than resistant. But it's a lot harder because you can't just, and there is no just about it because, you know, when you're fighting against insulin resistance, trying to lose weight is is hideous. Um, but he said it's a lot harder to treat. And then when it actually comes on to um, fertility treatment, Clomid, which is an uh, ovulation uh, induction drug, it's just a simple tablet and it helps to try and kick your ovaries into gear. He said very often people, with, women with classic PCOS will often respond very well, very easy to treat. He said women with lean PCOS are often Clomid resistant and it's often, they're more likely to uh, be to not respond to that so he said actually very often it's the women with lean PCOS if women if people at uh, women end up having IVF due to PCOS it's very often women with lean PCOS because they're often not against it doesn't but they are more likely to not respond to the simpler treatments so again, it's it's this misconception that there's only one type of PCOS, mm. um, and yeah, so that's you know, and, and they essentially they said, look, you've got loads of eggs. Um, there's you know, from an egg reserve point of view, there's no kind of major issues there. So, but because we knew that I had PCOS, essentially it was well, the warehouse is fully stocked, but uh, the merchandise doesn't ship. So we expected that I would need some kind of help to help with ovulation induction. So what that meant was I actually went to see a private gynecologist. I actually went to see him because I got diagnosed with epilepsy um, not long after we got married. And so I wanted to understand, they call it preconception counselling. You know, what would the pathway be? Because obviously the NHS won't see you um, for anything fertility related if you've not been until you've been trying for a year or uh, six months if you're uh, over 35 um, but as we knew I could have gone 10 months without a period it was like okay well let's let's try and find you know if you're not even in the game um, and then things kind of went catastrophically wrong with my ovaries um, in various different ways which we can happily come on and talk about um, but I am not a typical story Mm. Um, in terms of fertility, um, my gynecologist fertility consultant said, and he's an expert in PCOS, like he's written textbooks, and he said, I'm stumped, and I'm not usually stumped. Um, doctors, and actually it turns out that the reason I can't have children is actually nothing to do with my ex, it's to do with my womb lining um, and my periods. Um, so it's to do with the, the bleeding rather than the eggs um various things happened with kind of my PCOS disappearing and then coming back which again no one has an answer for but it turns out that my the reason that I can't 
get or stay pregnant is actually to do with my womb lining. So that's the reason I really wish I had paid more attention to my cycles when I was younger. Um, I didn't have, I had, my periods were problematic in the sense that they didn't happen very often, but we thought we had an answer for that because I had PCOS. Okay, fine, that's an explanation. What happened when I, we, I came off the pill because we wanted to start to try and we'd expected to have issues to do with my ovulation, it turned out, I won't even go to the egg saga because it's long, boring and very complicated, but essentially what transpired to be the problem is, is that my womb lining wouldn't grow and more importantly, it wouldn't shed. So even when we did manage to get it to grow, obviously what a period is, is your womb lining breaking down um, and shedding as a menstrual bleed. And obviously the, the menstrual cycle is your, the first half of the cycle is your womb lining getting really juicy and getting you know to a nice big snuggly mattress for an embryo to, to snuggle into. And then if you don't get pregnant, then it's the womb going, right, let's clean out, refresh, let's reset. So it's, you know, it's cleansing, etc. Mine wouldn't do that. Um, and it never did this before. So we don't know what happened between, you know, when, age 28 or, you know, any time before that to then when I came off the pill at 33. And, and all throughout when I'd been on the pill, I'd had normal, you know, light bleeds, but they were red bleeding. Then when I came off the pill, essentially that just stopped. I had brown spotting. There was no red bleeding. It was... You know, I didn't need a tampon, didn't even need a pad. And I've seen the world, ex one of the world experts in womb lining. There's a guy in Coventry who's a professor. Um, most of the literature that's been written on the role of womb lining in implantation and miscarriage has been written by this dude. It's at the Tommy's National Miscarriage Research Centre in, um, in Coventry. And, you know, he's Professor Womb Lining. And he said to me when I went to see him, and this was kind of at the end of our fertility journey where we tried all sorts of experimental treatments. And he said, Miss Lindemann, he said, you are without doubt the weirdest case I have ever seen. He said, most people that come through my door are medically boring, but you are anything but that. I have never seen what happens in your womb in humans, only in mice. Um, and then I had these womb biopsies that, they do for these tests and that kind of wasn't I, I wasn't going there to have these tests because actually the problem was I couldn't get to an embryo transfer because my lining just wouldn't grow and I'd had various surgeries and again we can touch on that but essentially even when they did these womb biopsies which aren't very pleasant but essentially they kind of go in with the equivalent of a hole punch into your into your uterus and kind of essentially punch out do a punch biopsy to get a sample of your womb lining they did I think out of four different punch samples, there literally wasn't any usable tissue for the lab to even look at. Like it was just gunk. There, was, there wasn't wound lining there. Um, I've spoken to doctors on both sides of the Atlantic. No one has a clue. Like they've never seen this before. So I am not typical, but essentially I spent, I mean, we, we spent, couple of years or you know over between IVF just trying to get me to have a period trying to get me to have a bleed and it was really upsetting 
to and actually after our first miscarriage we still you know we couldn't get me to have a bleed I had surgery but we still couldn't get me to have I'd had two surgeries but we still couldn't get me to have a a, a bleed like I would we could get my lining to grow and we did cement collection, but then it's still, so I would have, I, even when we got my lining to grow and you could see there was this, you know, quite a juicy looking lining on ultrasound. I was like, but where does it go? So all I got was this kind of black gunk. I was like, and we could see that it had thinned on the ultrasound. I was like, how do we go from 11 millimeters to three millimeters without having had a bleed? So whatever happened, it sort of reabsorbed and compacted And it was just so upsetting because, you know, period, you know, it's supposed to be cleansing and regeneration. And and we knew from my surgery that I still had pregnancy tissue in there. And so I just felt like my womb was this like toxic place where, you know, my baby had died. It was a miscarriage. And so just not being able to see that healthy red bleeding. And I still don't have that. Um, It's 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 really upsetting and so again i i wish i had been more aware and i know that there wasn't anything weird or normal when i was younger but it's 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 a very strange feeling particularly when you're going through fertility and infertility that most of the time you're desperately hope you're supposed to desperately hoping you won't get a period when you're trying for a baby and you're desperately hoping when you're pregnant if you're pregnant not to bleed and so you kind of have knicker watch where you're constantly checking to see if you're bleeding and mine was the reverse for most of my fertility treatment we were just desperately trying to get me to have a period as in to have a bleed um so i i am not the typical and none of this we think is to do with my pcos that's the thing is is that or we don't know but there is no reason that what happened with my womb and my periods as in my bleeds is necessarily anything to do with PCOS because those, you know, PCOS is a very common endocrine disorder. Um, and so I, I am not typical. <laughs> what, what would you have done differently if you could go back? And I know it's, uh, it's easy to play the shoulda, woulda, coulda game, yeah. but just, you know, with all of the knowledge and all of the experts that you've spoken to, if you had a time machine, and I know you used the time machine analogy before, what exactly would you have done differently? I would uh, definitely have, say, be aware of your cycles, be aware Mm. of your body. Um, I would probably um, have, again, knowing what I know now, said, go on, get a copper coil, so non-hormonal contraception, and then if you're really you know, if there was a, you know, a holiday or exams or something, you know, knowing what I know now, then you can, you know, you can delay your period or take it to make sure that you don't get a period for those important times. And I would get not go on hormonal contraception, I would have got a copper coil, um, and tracked my periods and been aware of my fertile signs. And again, it was a clue when I came off the pill and started, you know, I bought taking charge of your fertility and started charting Mm. and following your um, cervical fluid. And again, it was all of this stuff that, and that with ovulation sticks that I thought that wasn't something quite right because you're supposed to get cervical fluid that is an indication of estrogen. And I wasn't getting that. And so I was like, what's going on with my estrogen? I'm not getting these proper periods. And I, I, was, I was convinced from the start there was something wrong with my lining. And it turned out that that 
was right. But again, it's it's putting the pieces of the puzzle. So I would say with my time machine, um, track your cycles. And I would not have gone on hormonal contraception, but I would have been aware that it is still possible to use um, hormone, you know, to if there's something important or a holiday that, you know, a short period of time that you can you can control your your menstruation in that way. Um, so, yeah, that's what that's what my, if my time machine I would have done. Has your experience changed your view on hormonal contraception? I think for me personally, um, yes, because my issues are so strange. What I would again say, I don't think, I don't think, you know, I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And again, I think, um, you know, the Mirena is a wonderful thing and particularly for women that have heavy periods or endometriosis, because again, the, you know, and I, in my writing and the stuff that I do now with fertility and my, my consultant was uh, an endometriosis surgeon. He wrote the te- textbooks and endometriosis and fibroids are debilitating and so for many women using hormonal contraception can be you know can be life-changing um so i'm not kind of anti-hormones what i would say is um to anyone who's thinking about they want to you know thinking about getting pregnant come off if you are on hormonal contraception come off well before you want to start trying and particularly if you are um if you've got the the depo provera because that particularly it can take up to a year that's a lot longer the washout time um so i would say to anybody if you want to you know if you're thinking about wanting to start trying come off hormonal contraception well before you want to start trying and track your cycles what would you say is your feeling towards your period now? Um, it's it's a horrific reminder um, of what my body can't do. I now do have, I mean, I have, my cycles vary. I do have cycles of some kind. Um, so anything between like 35 and I have gone kind of 70, but it kind of may be about 40, 50 days. Um but I still don't bleed. Um, so I started using a menstrual... I mean, actually, again, when I was doing my fertility treatment, I started using a menstrual cup because it was it was really important. And again, this is the other thing, is saying, take track of what your bleeds are like. No, and knowing... And I was, I was talking to somebody yesterday who's had, uh, who's had Asherman syndrome, and that's a, a, a problem... Uh, that happens uh, post can happen very very unlikely but can happen post uh, DNC surgical management of miscarriage or uh, cesarean section. Notice what your bleeds are like. How much spotting is there? How much red bleeding? How many days? How many pads or tampons do you go through? Um, so don't just do the I, how I get period. Pay attention to that. And for me, it's really upsetting because it's still this horrible gunk. Um, I had a copper coil put in um, after we finished treatment. Copper coils are used um, in the treatment of Asherman syndrome. And uh, 
um, which is to do with when you've got scarring in the womb. I don't have that, but essentially if you have problems with thin womb lining, it is part of the treatment. Ironically, it's part of fertility treatment, having a, a copper coil, because the copper generates an inflammatory reaction in the um, endometrium. And so it can essentially cause the, the lining to get thicker, which is why women who uh, do have a copper coil very often will have heavier um, bleeds. Um, I had one put it back in after I'd had one after we finished treatment. Well, for two reasons. One was that we needed to draw a line under the hope of wondering would we be that unicorn couple who you know had sex and oh my god you know after all the failed IVF you know had had a bunk at the wrong time and oh my god they're pregnant. I couldn't live in that permanent limbo. But the reason, main reason, was to do with in the hope that at least it would make my periods a bit more like a period than literally, I mean, I'm going to be completely TMI. It looked, if I didn't know it was a period, I would have thought that I had, it had come from the other hole, like brown, you know, it's, it's distressing because it is a reminder of how my body is broken. You said some of your cycles are 70, 50, 70 days long. So, you know, every time you have a, a period, you have this reminder and so what have you done to kind of give yourself the emotional tools to deal with that that reminder um well for me so when i when we reached the end of um our yeah our fertility or at least the fertility journey with my body when we you know we tried all of these crazy experimental treatments we used I used Viagra, we used blood thinners. I used a drug that's used for chemo where we had intrauterine infusions where we squirted it in my womb. All these kind of, you know, lots of supplements that are supposed to help with uterine blood flow. You know, you name it, we tried it and none of that worked. Um, again, mo- most people don't, you know, having lining problems is unusual, but when we, it was very clear that we were on the road to nowhere and we couldn't even get off the starting block. And then when I went to see Professor Womb Lining, um, it was after that that I decided I wanted to try and there's a bit of a sense of going when you can't have children or at least with my body of going I feel like what what's my legacy and you get quite existential about it but there was or you can do with infertility I am not for one moment saying that having a life without children or whether it's childless not by choice or child free is in no way inferior I am not saying that at all I'm talking about my personal feelings about how I felt about my body and my own journey and I started essentially it came from a place of being peed off um, that I only ever saw one narrative of infertility the only narrative that we see um, when people do talk about it is after they've been successful Mm. so and particularly in public discourse, in the media, if anything, you see a story about, you know, somebody talking about their IVF struggle, or their infertility struggle, or I had X number of miscarriages, it always ends with the miracle baby. Or they only say, oh, we had this problem after they go and they announce the successful pregnancy. And actually, and it's, and it's very sanitised. Um, it's the narrative is always stay strong, you'll get there, it'll be worth it when you have your baby in your arms, don't give up hope. And actually, that wasn't that wasn't how I felt, and that wasn't how so many women that I got to know through um, you know these kind of infertility communities online, you know these kind of secret Facebook groups and online forums and so on. 
you know, it was difficult and messy and, and uh, you know, physically, emotionally, you know, we didn't feel positive. And particularly when you're in that situation and the only way out that is presented to you and you're in the pit of depression, anxiety, you know, suicidal ideation is not uncommon with infertility and pregnancy loss. The only way out that is presented to you is having a baby. When you're there going, well, what happens if we don't? Like, am I going to feel like this forever? And we don't have, there aren't many role models for actually either people who come through at the other side who did who weren't successful with their fertility journey, um, but also just acknowledgement that it, you know, it's desperately unfair, utterly unrelenting, and really hard. Um, and so I was fed up with the fact that in order to kind of have these conversations with other women about what it was really like, you know, you had to go looking for them. I would not have got through my journey if it was not for the incredible sisterhood, solidarity and support of all the incredible women I've had the privilege to get to know through online communities. But it's this hidden world because you have to go looking for it. And also you have to find your people. You know, there are plenty of people who were hope and rainbows and that's great but that wasn't where I was. So mine came from actually just being annoyed and frustrated <laughs> at there only being one narrative. So I decided that I was going to try and, and write about, um, about what it's really like, or at least the experience that I knew and the experience that I knew a lot of other women that I got to know and had spoken to. Um, you know, uh, and so I decided to start by writing a blog and I had a, a thought that I was wanted to try and write a book because, again, the only other books always ended with The Miracle Baby. And that has been incredibly healing and it's actually taken me on this incredible journey of of broadcasting and, and being in a film and, you know, going on radio and just being and meeting so many people. Um, and that has been what's helped me emotionally is being able to find my voice. Um, that's been what's very long and convoluted answer to your question. No, it's wonderful. And that actually leads into the next question. So this, your blog is called, and the organization, is it an organization? No. Barons so I, I talk about, um, you know, infertility um, or, you know, anyone experiencing fertility problems. And I use that as shorthand, including pregnancy loss, anything about not being able to uh, conceive or carry a baby to term. So that includes um, infertility, primary or secondary, um, miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy, molar pregnancy, late miscarriage, stillbirth, anything that's wanting to have a baby and not being able to. It's a club that no one wants to join. But as with so many things, when you speak to other members of that same club, there is an instant understanding and a, a you know a sisterhood that you have a common understanding and there's a, a you know a language and a shorthand and a vocabulary that need not be explained, and it's just the oh it's not just me oh you get it and actually the kind of the the baron baron's a hideous word it's been used throughout history as a slur you know incredibly derogatory you know devoid lacking inferior dried up. You know, it's an awful word, but actually it came as a as a sort of label. It, it was actually ironically on mum's net, you know, the largest parenting forum. <laughs> there were infertility boards and we jokingly, some of us, the kind of more irreverent ones, jokingly referred to it as the barren ghetto because we were like, well, that's where the barren women go. But actually it became very kind of actually taking a kind of slur. How do you drain a slur of its power? 
um, you know, we've seen this with so many different, you know, language, whether it's dyke, queer, you know, um, you know, if you can reappropriate oppressive language and, and reclaim it, you can train a slur of its power. And so we kind of jokingly referred to ourselves as, you know, the barons and the uber barons saying, we're not just infertile, we're really, really infertile. Now that happened to be on, you know, a thread on a forum. There were lots of, but I, I don't, it isn't a club or a community. To me, it is anybody who has, you know, we are a silent sisterhood. We are, sorry, there is, you know, one in six or one in seven, depending on the statistics you look at, um, couples experiences, trouble conceiving, one in four pregnancies ends in miscarriage. We are a very large sisterhood, um, but we're also a silent sorority. And so I don't, you know, yes, I have, uh, you know, Instagram, and there's kind of lots of different, you know, I'm involved in lots of different communities, but it's not my club. To me, it's, it's, it's a way of talking about the fact that um, you are not alone. So mm. it, it's not my club, but it's sort of my my handle that I use for my blog, my potential of the book that I'm hoping to write and anything I talk about. So it's, it's not just about me. You know, I am not Uber Barons Club. We are all, you know, you are anybody who has experienced fertility or problems. You, you are not alone and you're part. Of, it's a club that no one wants to join. Membership of our club is defined by exclusion from the club that we want to join, which is the parents club. Um, and it's a club that no one wants to join, but it means the world when you know you're not alone. So that's why I kind of use that as a, as a, I guess it's a, not just a metaphor and that's the kind of name I have, but it's really trying to hold space for a conversation. And so tell us about a little bit more about the book you said you're hoping to write. Yeah. So as I mentioned before that I, I got, I just got frustrated that every book that I read, there are lots of different, most of the books about infertility, there's lots of books about the beginning of the journey that are about how to get pregnant or about your fertility, you know, practical guides. And, you know, there's a couple of memoirs, but, and apart from a couple, the vast majority end with the miracle baby. And as I said, that there was a narrative that I knew with these online communities and, you know, the real, the experience that I knew that I didn't see reflected was was it was messy and I wasn't I was ashamed of being infertile but I was ashamed of all the feelings that came with it and you know the the guilt grief the the desperation all of the crazy nasty things that you feel and that you think and the jealousy and and how it what it does to your identity and so for me I just I decided well that was the book I what I got from the online communities, you know, I had this incredible support, but you have to go looking for it. So I wanted to try and kind of re- make the invisible visible and go, well, how can I, how can I raise women's voices to have a different conversation? So I thought, well, that's the book I would have wanted to read. I didn't know if anyone else would want to read it. I thought they probably would. And I knew women would pull their hearts out on forums and in anonymous communities and on Instagram and so on. So I put up a website and I put up a survey um, to see whether there was kind of women would share. And I'm not, this wasn't, and this isn't about your journey in terms of the practicalities or how many cycles did you do or this or how many losses. It's about the emotions because that's the thing that binds us. That's the thing that is a club 
is that it doesn't matter whether your journey is long or short, successful, not successful. There are, you know, it's not about identities. There are emotions that bind us that we will all have experienced in one form or another. So I put up a survey to see whether people were, you know, would be willing. And I was, I was amazed this the amount of responses that came in. And, you know, I asked in the last thing of the survey again, would you want to read a book like this? And again, so many people said yes, because I would have felt less alone. I would have known that the feelings that I have are normal. So that was the thing that I, you know, my sort of three goals that I would like was is one to, you know, help people know that they're not alone. Two, to um, try to normalize and validate that whatever you are feeling, however weird or uncomfortable, somebody else has felt that too. And then the third thing is to actually um, help you to know that, that not every story ends with a baby, but that, you know, that the sense of you'll get there. There might not mean a, mean a baby, but you will get there and you will be okay, whatever happens. Um, so, uh, I've, I'm now trying to, trying to put that together and assemble that into something resembling, something resembling a book. Um, and, I and, think I've, that's and I've really now, yeah, and I'm now writing about it. I've written the guardian and it's just taken on a whole life of its own and, um, it's very healing. That's a really nice message. You, you will be okay no matter what happens. And I think that's, you know, you mentioned the kind of hope and flowers and rainbows of a fertility community. And I think this more realistic message, like a dose of realism is really nice um, for people who just don't really vibe with that kind of, you know, uber positive message. And everyone is different. And some people absolutely, you know, that's what, and that's fine. That's absolutely, there is no, that's the thing. There is no right or wrong way to do this there is no right or wrong way and so I'm not doing that down at all but that wasn't where I was and it can feel very oppressive especially when you're told just relax think positive no relaxing is not stressing it is not going to get you pregnant and it's not preventing you from getting pregnant stress causes infertility sorry infertility causes stress but stress does not cause infertility it can affect your you know your hormonal you know you might in times of acute stress that might um affect your ovulation but when you look at the fecundity rates of uh, conflict zones and famine zones um women still have babies you know mm-hmm. so it's 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 okay you're you're allowed to feel the feels how can women get in touch with you or what men who have experienced yeah men is so important um men have so often forgotten and the thing is it takes at least two you know two people to make a baby sometimes more depending on you know donor or conception or surrogacy um uh you can find me at uberbarons.club so that's u-b-e-r-b-a-r-r-e-n-s.club I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, at uberbarons.club and you can email me at katie at uberbarons.club and if you go to the website there is a survey you just uh, find the share button at the top so it's uberbarons.club slash share there's a survey there for both women and men um, it's uh, it's in sections you can save each section as you go along um, I uh, I recommend or lots of people have recommended saying if you do want to take part that it's quite helpful to write up your answers kind of offline and copy and paste them in because then you can kind of come back to stuff and uh, it, don't worry if you're like your browser crashes 
I really want to hear from anybody wherever they are in their journey, whether they've been successful or not. There is actually a section about uh, pregnancy and parenting, um, primary or secondary, you know, anything that who has experienced or has experienced or wherever you are successful or not. Um, I would love to hear from you. One last thing you would want uh, listeners to take away with them. If you, if you could distill all of the amazing pros of wisdom you've shared, what would that one thing be? Reach out. Um, so, you know, reach out, uh, read up, learn about your own body, reach out, don't be afraid to ask questions, reach out to other people. Um, you are not alone. It, you know, if I had to say it in one sentence, you don't have to do this alone. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.